0: Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance.
1: In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Peter Bedke, Professor of Economics and Philosophy at George Mason University. Peter is an Austrian economist and I talk to him about Austrian economics, the difference with Keynesian economics, and then I question what his views and what his understanding of economics is. We also discussed some aspects of his latest book, Living Economics, and the theme of mainline and mainstream economics and how they differ with one another. It's so evident from this conversation with Peter that he is so passionate and knowledgeable about the field of economics, and he's embracing the readings and the research behind all types of economists, be they from Smith to Keynes and beyond. To access all the links and resources mentioned in this episode by Peter Bedke, visit economicrockstar.com forward slash Peter Bedke. That's P-E-T-E-R-B-O-E-T-T-K-E. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com. Submit your name and email and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.
0: Scientifically, we have to recognize that the, what I call mainline economics uh, represents a kind of methodological, analytical, and practical challenge to the dominant way in which people think about economics. And so that's kind of tough because you're fighting a battle on three different fronts and which one do you choose to fight at any one time is going to dictate you know, how successful you are. Hi, Frank Conway here and you're listening to the
1: Economic Rockstar podcast. I am so honored to have Peter Bedke join me today. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Frank. It's great to be here.
1: Peter Bedke is professor of economics and philosophy at George Mason University the BB&T Professor for the Study of Capitalism and the Director of the F.A. Hayek Programme for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics and Economics at the Mercatus Centre at George Mason University. Peter is now the co-author, along with David Pritchko, of the Classic Principles of Economics, texts of Paul Haynes' The Economic Way of Thinking. Professor Bedke's most recent book, Living Economics, provides a resource for how teachers and students can engage in many fascinating questions in economics, and illuminates the core principles that should guide our thinking. Peter's efforts in the classroom have earned him a number of distinctions, including the Golden Dozen Award for Excellence in Teaching from the College of Arts and Sciences at New York University and the George Mason University Alumni Association's 2009 Faculty Member of the Year Award. Peter's research has primarily been in the area of comparative political and economic systems and the consequences with regard to material progress and political freedom. Peter, you're obviously based on your bio and your the, the numerous published articles and texts that you have, you are considered a, an Austrian economist. Yes. <laughs> and you, I've, I've read some part of your, your book, Living Economics, and you obviously critique or you criticize um, Keynesianism and what that has done. And maybe I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit in the future, but what I'm... As I've exposed myself to a lot of economic thinkers like yourself and those who may be of different schools, I'm beginning to get confused as to what economics actually is. And I, I did interview a Professor Steve Keane recently, or about a year and a half ago, and he took the viewpoint that a pluralist education is quite a, a good thing to do because it gives you exposure to all the disciplines. And then I think that way you might become well-rounded. And you you obviously have that as well. But could you ask me, what's your definition of economics? I know that's quite a difficult question to ask, I'm sure. But from your own perspective?
0: Um, <clears throat> Well, if I can, let me make a sort of a pitch for pluralism to begin with, uh, just in the sense that as a practical matter, so uh, not just the intellectual... Um, sort of merits of it in terms of in and of itself um, that we should value intellectual diversity and, and dialogue, but also the idea that it has very practical merits in the sense that as Keynes taught us uh, ideas in the practical policy world are usually uh, the theories of some defunct academic scribbler from a generation earlier. And I think it's very important to study the academic scribblers for people that want to understand events around them. So, for example, Ben Bernanke, uh, faced with the uh, crisis situation in the fall of 2008, you know, engaged in a series of actions, which if you had read his earlier papers in 1983 about what happens when the credit, uh, credit transmission mechanism locks up, you would see why he took the steps that he did. Now, that's independent of whether or not those are the correct steps or, you know, uh, incorrect steps. But understanding why it is he took the steps he did, you have to understand the economic theories that guide him. And then in retrospect, he often tried to make the claim that what he was doing was simply fo- following, you know, Badgett's rule. So you'd have to understand what Badgett's rule means, where that comes from, Walter Badgett, what's the Lombard Street, you know, what are those kind of ideas. So I think studying the worldly philosophy, as people have mentioned it before, is not only has intellectual merits in itself, it has very practical merits and understanding what the different intellectual perspectives are in the history of that um, discipline um, aids greatly our understanding of what's going on with the way people respond to different activities. And what's true for Ben Bernanke is also true for Janet Yellen uh, or any other major decision makers that you can think about uh, throughout the world. So that's my one pitch for uh, being able to put on the different eyeglasses of economists. What I mean by economics uh, when I go to study is I'm trying to understand the uh, sort of aspects of the human condition, which relate to the coordination of individuals, diverse individuals, so that they can realize um, the uh, sort of peaceful social cooperation among one another. So one of the big questions that I always think about are, you know, what are the rules of the game that allow us to live better together than we ever could apart? Now, economics has a variety of very technical you know, definitions, the most famous of what, uh, which is um, the allocation of scarce means among competing ends, right? Um, and then therefore you sometimes move from that being the definition of the individual decision maker to then the societal decision maker. And then that takes economics in another direction. If instead, if you look at like the way I'm thinking about it, which is that economics is really about the coordination problem that society faces. Um, how is it that We mesh the production plans of some with the consumption demands of others, and that doesn't deny the economizing aspect of trying to allocate scarce resources among competing ends, but it looks at the exchange relationships and the economic interactions that people engage in to be able to generate coordination. And then that makes you think about the institutions that enable or disable our ability to achieve those coordinations. And so then economics takes on a kind of a different path than it did if you thought of society as choosing how to allocate scarce resources among its competing ends.
1: So no matter where you where you're from, what institution, what type of social structure that you have, economics could be quite differently defined because you might not have that coordination if you have, say, a dictatorship or a despot.
0: Well, you would have it in some sense, but you wouldn't have complex coordination. You would have simpler coordination. So, you know, the key issue there is coordination such that you can achieve social cooperation under division of labor. Um, and so as, you know, as Adam Smith taught us, you know, way back when, <laughs> that uh, the greatest improvements to the material well-being of individuals due to the extension of the division of labor All right. And so that's through the specialization and exchange. And so the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. You grow the market, you can have finer divisions of labor. Those finer division of labor generate greater productivity, which allows us to expand the market. And so this is why I, you know, a lot of the stuff that I get drawn into is looking at economics um, in the issue of development economics, because we're trying to talk about the transition As Adam Smith talked about an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations or Asimoglu and Johnson, you know, talk about or excuse me, Asimoglu and Robinson talk about, you know, why nations fail, which is just a sort of restatement of the Smithian kind of idea again, is that how do you move from subsistence to the exchange order? And so, yes, it's true that along each of these levels, there's coordination problems, and that coordination problem, in terms of its magnitude, changes. The difficulty of that problem changes. Um, but with it, what we want to get is to a situation where you have exchange relations, which is an extreme complex coordination problem, as opposed to, say, the simple coordination problem of an anthill. Right, Um, and so yes, it's coordination all the way through. The question is: is in a modern industrialized economy, how does that coordination problem get solved? And have we
1: become lost in all of this? All of Adam Smith's thinking. I I did interview Darren Nassimoglu in episode sixty-eight, and he was talking about his book "Why Nations Fail," and it's it's quite intriguing um, uh, dialogue that I had with him. But Adam Smith and I'm sure people get confused as to what he has he means in his theory of moral sentiments, and also where he picks up on rationality in his um, the, uh, what's the the second book, sorry,
0: Wealth of Nations, Wealth and of the relationship nations. between the two of those, and yeah, I mean, so you were asking me about Austrian economics before in my book Leaving Economics, I actually uh, don't talk exclusively about Austrian economics. I talk about what I call mainline economics. Um, And so that is the teaching of mainline economics from the Scottish schoolmen, like Hume and Smith, to the French uh, liberals in the 19th century, like Say, uh, to the British utilitarians like Mill, uh, to the early neoclassical economists, a branch of which is the Austrian school, to later day um, you know, economists such as the new institutionalists. And what I ask in that book is what unites, you know, the common thread of economics so that imagine if you were a Martian and you came and had a conversation with each of those different representatives of those schools and that could they recognize what you're all doing as economics? Right. Throughout that. Whereas if I came and I was a Martian and I was talking to Adam Smith and then I'm talking to, say, Paul Samuelson, do they still recognize that they're doing the same thing? Right. Or would the Martian think they were doing two different kind of ideas? And so the way I divide that book is the first part of the book is about what are the core ideas of mainline economics. Then the second part of the book are, you know, who were the great teachers of mainline economics. And then the third part of the book is what are the implications of mainline economics for the way we think about public policy and applications and whatnot. And the idea that I have in there is that as as many people can tell you, you know, they think of Adam Smith, they'll think of the invisible hand but they don't think about the way Adam Smith reasoned about the invisible hand. They have some caricature of the invisible hand. And what I say in there is that the Smithian, Humean style of reasoning is to derive the invisible hand theorem in quotes uh, from the uh, self-interested postulate uh, via institutional analysis. So if you read Smith and Hume institutions are throughout the entire process and in fact it's not the case that self-interest always generates publicly desirable outcomes professors smith uses example in oxford are as self-interested as the professors are in glasgow but the results in terms of education the manifestation of their self-interested behavior changes in glasgow the professors were paid by direct student fees In Oxford, they were paid out of an endowment. It didn't matter if the students were satisfied or not. So in Oxford, Smith describes the professors as being aloof, uncaring, not very prepared, and whatnot. Whereas the professors in Glasgow were very attentive, were very prepared, cared about what the consumer, uh, the, uh, the students, wanted to learn and whatnot, and that's not because of behavioral differences. It's because manifestation of behavior changes because of the institutional context, and to me, it's this issue of how our institutions will guide us or deter us in our efforts to coordinate with others and realize the gains from trade and the gains from innovation that unites the economics from Adam Smith to Vernon Smith. And that there are other people who we could call economic thinkers, in quotes, who deny that either one of two ways. They either try to collapse the invisible hand theorem to the rationality postulate and get rid of institutions. That's what happens in a lot of formal economics. And then there's those who then deny that either individuals are rational or that an invisible hand process exists. And, uh, um, they, they tend to be people from, you know, Malthus all the way to Marx to Keynes to Veblen to Galbraith and, and these kind of people. And so there's a difference between mainline economics and mainstream economics because mainstream economics is whatever is currently fashionable in science. And sometimes the mainline is the mainstream and other times there's big deviations. And it's at that moment of deviations when the mainline teaching is at odds with the mainstream science that you see schools of thought rise up to challenge the existing status quo and try to bring back again a lot of the core Smithian insights. And this, uh, to me, is the explanation of why you saw in the post-World War II period things like property rights economics. As if somehow economists in the past never talked about property rights. That's not true. Economists always talked about property rights and the difference between, you know, David Hume argued that society was grounded on the idea of property contract and consent. You couldn't get civil society off the ground without those. But why then did we need Armin Alchin and all these other Harold Demsets to rediscover the economic role of private property rights in the post-World War II period of economics? And a similar thing you could say about public choice economists from the beginning had always understood how special interest groups can manipulate economic policy to benefit themselves at the expense of others. I mean, think of one of the greatest satires in the history of economics, right, is Bastiat's petition where the the candlestick makers are petitioning the government uh, for protection from the unfair competition of the sun. It's fantastic. <laughs> you know, you know, Adam Smith pointed out in the wealth of nations, the sophistry of the businessmen who are constantly trying to appeal to the government to give them monopoly privileges against the competition. And then all of a sudden in the, the post World War II period, we needed Gordon Tullock to come along and tell us about, you know, the reason for what we call rent seeking, right? And the use of interest groups in order to get artificial restrictions um, and, and be able to earn those monopoly rents. And so, you know, we had to rediscover a lot of things because our economics pushed all of those institutional factors out of economics in order for us to get more precise modeling. And so they had to be rediscovered. And that's, that's this issue of the main line and the mainstream and Austrian economics to a large extent should be seen in that light, because what the Austrians are doing is not some other economics. They're doing the continuation of the long line of economic reasoning that comes from Adam Smith, is further refined by John Baptiste Say, is then further refined again by John Stuart Mill, and then is developed in the early neoclassical uh, sort of revolution in the late 19th century, earlier 20th century. And what they're trying to do is emphasize the role of the entrepreneur, the role of the market process, uh, the role of discovery, all knowledge, all of these kind of things, which, again, you know, it's not that that was unknown to Adam Smith. It's just that it was stated in, in a way that needed further elaboration and refinement. And so the science progresses by going forward and doing that. And I think that that's that if you see that the, the economics is a constantly growing, constantly evolving science, it's a living thing. That's the reason why the title called Living Economics and why you have the
1: tree on the cover of the book as well.
0: Right. And and that this is, a, you know, the branches are growing, but the tree is deeply rooted, you know, and that roots are all the way at Adam Smith, but then there's all these branches and the trees are lively. And if you can excite people about the like living body of economic ideas, then, you know, that's what, that's the first thing that we need to do. And then you judge assessments between them. Now, going back to Professor Keene's point, One of the problems, I think, is that when we study so much what other people think about the world and not the world itself, we, you know, we lose touch with that. And that's a mistake. So imagine if you, you know, just as an imagery, imagine you have a globe and then you have a bunch of economists all studying the globe. So the eyes, their eyes are directed. The arrow should be directed at the world. And then what happens with any specialized discipline? is you end up by talking about each other, <laughs> right? So now the arrow is pointed at the economist and not back at the world. And when we do that and we do it too much and we lose sight of the reality that we're trying to understand and the human condition that we're trying to, uh, you know, get a grasp on, then that's when economics gets really lost. And so instead, we should always have the touchstone that economics is not going to be just trapped in free-floating abstractions, But instead is always drawn to the world, but yet at the same time, not always just doing momentary, you know, whatever the current fads and fashion are in the policy space. So it's this interesting intellectual dance that we have to engage in between understanding theoretical frameworks and thinking about application of those frameworks to the world that we live in. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. Yeah.
1: Oh, it totally makes sense. And, you know, that was the underlying theme of your book, Mainline and Mainstream Economics. And do you have we have we a deviation right now between those two? Because you have the financial crisis. I know it's in the recent past. But again, ever since that happened, the plethora of papers that have come out to explain the causes of the crash, irrespective of what economic thought or thinking we have. But again, if there's something that's of, that's current, that's a fad in terms of thinking or behaviors in the economy. That's a lot of publications occur at that point And students, especially if they're doing research, to get the the interest of the supervisor or to get the possibility of publication needs to follow the fad. And then all of a sudden, yeah. like my, my, my thinking would be, say, for example, the official market hypothesis in the 1980s, then late 80s, it was all... Uh, anomalies and yeah. that just dropped off the cliff
0: yeah no i think that that's right i think one of the things that a lot of critics say people that are somewhat so i don't like to say heterodox especially with respect to austrian economics because uh, that's how a lot of people characterize austrian economics but austrian economics is really they believe you know austrian economists believe that individuals are uh, making choices within constraints uh, that in making those choices, they pay attention to the marginal, you know, unit. So they're marginalists, they're subjectivists. Uh, they believe that, the, you know, the sort of the nature in which the price system operates. Um, and so that's different from like the Marxist critics or the post-Keynesian critics or the old institutionalist critics. So Austrian economics is more in line with like modern new institutional economics and early neoclassical economics. Um, but Austrian economists are slightly out of sync. So I like to use the phrase slightly out of sync economists as opposed to – if I'm not using the term mainline uh, to describe the kind of ideas. But I think we overstate how in the wake of the financial crisis, how the um, breast beating by some older economists but primarily by heterodox economists – about how the economics profession screwed up so badly, we overestimate how that's had an impact on the economics profession. Um, So it's true that in the outside of the mainstream literature um, that you see a lot of people, you know, the George Soros movement and INET, and also, you know, like the Hayekian types, like with the rap videos, you know, um, and all of that, a lot of attention or for that matter, Hyman Minsky and the Minsky moment. So sort of a post-Keynesian kind of idea. Uh, a lot of people saying, oh, my God, we got to change the way we teach macroeconomics and everything like that. Well, I, I dare anyone to go and <laughs> to Harvard, MIT or any of those other places and see how much macroeconomics has actually changed you know, in, in, since 2008. Um, I don't think the syllabuses have changed. I don't think the general modeling stratagems have changed all that much. And I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I just think we overstate how much all this angst that people have in our con- uh, sort of a more popular intellectual culture has had an impact on the scientific culture. And so if we stick and we go back to the scientific culture of economics, that's a different battle than the one that we talk about on the, the pages of the New York times or in the blogosphere and places like that.
1: When I was a, an undergrad and a postgrad, my exposure to economics was your classical denim to Keynesian. And it pretty much was dominated by Keynesian economics. Sure. And then I did the postgrad. And like that, you mentioned earlier about Bernanke's paper about credit, uh, transmission mechanisms, and pretty much that's what we studied, all all that type of, um, those economists and that type of thinking. But there was one module I had in my postgrad, and it was a theory colloquium we had. And it was more of a, get, get the seats around in a circle. In advance, we would have read papers. And the economist that we were going to study for this module was Frederick Hayek. Hmm. And this was my first time, to be honest, being exposed to any other thinking to classical and Keynesian and mm-hmm. to be honest I pretty much fell in love with it because we had to really study this in detail in order to be able to have hold our own in terms of a discussion so I studied about the market order spontaneous order entrepreneurial and um, what entrepreneurialism is in the economy and pretty much fell in love with it but pretty much after then my master's thesis when I qualified I went on to teach and I got sidetracked and back into the curriculum of teaching classical Keynesian and there was no room for um, talking about these uh, Hayek and when I discovered later on von Mises and so on. Yeah. That's a pity.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, but I think there's a, there's kind of a reality, which is you only have so much time to do things when you're teaching and there's expectations in the curriculum about what students can take afterwards. So, you mentioned in the introduction that I now one of the authors on a textbook uh, called The Economic Way of Thinking. Um I started being an an ed, uh, like the author on that um in the 10th edition. Uh, Paul Hain, unfortunately passed away. He asked me if I would keep the book going. Um we're now at the 13th edition, so we've done four, you know, editions of it, the 10th, the, the 11th, the 12th and the 13th. And um and so um but Paul, so Paul was very influential on me in the way that I taught. And I started teaching his his textbook probably when it was in its second edition way back when. And uh and uh, Paul's uh, main idea was teach the principles of economics as if it's the last class your students will ever take in economics and it will be the first of many. And that always has impressed me. And so well, what Paul tried to do in that textbook is boil down it, you know, it's, it was written for a one semester overview of economics for non-economic majors, right? That that's the sort of audience that you have there. And so you're not going to have students that are then taking, you know, they need to learn all about the perfect competition model, monopoly and everything, because the next class they're going to take, they're going to go further into that again. But instead, it's like, what could you boil down the principles of economics to? And what Haynes' approach was is let's get students thinking about opportunity cost reasoning. If they think in terms consistently and persistently of opportunity cost reasoning, that we live in a world of scarcity. Scarcity implies tradeoffs, right? In order to engage in those tradeoffs, you have to negotiate those tradeoffs. To do so, you're going to need to have property prices and profit loss as aids to the mind to be able to steer you in this negotiation process. And then other people are engaged in that negotiation process for themselves. So then that leads to mutually beneficial exchange, market interactions, and so forth, right? That's the book, The Economic Way of Thinking. And it goes through all of that. And then eventually, you know, you need rules, which go find that. So that's why you get to the constitutional moment. And so that's why that book, in some sense, is a principles-level summary of the ideas of Hayek and of Jim Buchanan. And so put those, um you know, together and then the playing out of that that argument. Now, if that textbook is very, very useful for this one semester introduction class, but it doesn't lend itself to the same kind of multiple choice exam, you know, process, it doesn't lend itself to the same kind of I'm going to now take another class, which then builds on the models that I learned in the earlier class, right, and go forward. And so, whereas the way Keynesianism has developed or the way neoclassical uh, models have developed, it's very easy to do that in the teaching. And so that becomes the standard mode by which we communicate economic ideas. I mean, you go from an income expenditure model to an ISLM model to an aggregate supply, aggregate demand model, right? And, you know, when you're in the ISLM framework in the old days, you used to have a four-quadrant model and you could compare and contrast directly the classicals, the Keynesians, and the monetarists. It was very easy to transfer that to that model. Where would you put like the Hayekian criticism in there? It's hard to fit it, so it doesn't fit in the curriculum because it's hard to fit the criticisms in, just like it's hard to fit the Minsky moment in, so that doesn't get put into the curriculum. But yet the standard way in which we interact Uh, you know, it fits in that model space, and therefore it's good for pedagogy. And I think as teachers, we all have to make those decisions about how we're going to introduce ideas which don't fit into the standard pedagogical position or claim some consistency with the original pedagogical missions, which is teaching opportunity cost reasoning and going all the way through.
1: And it's could it be wrong by saying that it's also because – You can put mathematical equations and quantities and equilibriums, whereas with an Austrian way of thinking, you don't have that. But you also talk about the market as an ongoing process or a spontaneous order where you you were never at any one particular. Well, you could be at a particular point in time, but it's transitory more than uh, being in equilibrium for a certain delayed
0: time period or if they put time on it at all. Um, so that's a, a very important point that you raised. Uh, let me just divide it between our scientific discussions and our pedagogical discussions. So first, pedagogically, just to get that off the table, it's um, the kind of reasoning that Austrian economics or new institutional economics or public choice economics forces us to do would be more like – giving questions and then saying true, false and uncertain, and then having students have to write essays. <laughs> and then professors would have to judge the essays on true, false and uncertain about these different propositions. You know, why does the good wine travel, you know, out of out of the Pacific Northwest into New, into, to New York City or something like that, you know, and so you'd have to then study these kind of things uh, and give true, false and uncertain explanations as opposed to a very deterministic model, which can give us ABC or none of the above. And then I can put it through a scantron, right. And I can grade it, you know, a hundred question, a hundred, uh, essay, a hundred tests, excuse me, in like five minutes, right. Uh, as opposed to having to grade for the whole weekend. Um, so I think that there's advantages and disadvantages that bias certain processes. But I also think scientifically, we have to recognize that the what I call mainline economics uh, represents a kind of methodological, analytical, and practical challenge to the dominant way in which people think about economics. And so that's kind of tough because you're fighting a battle on three different fronts. And which one do you choose to fight at any one time? is going to dictate, you know, how successful you are. So, you know, the methodological battle goes back to what you were talking to me before. It's like, are the tools that we develop to analyze a determinate solution, are those the right tools for a contingent and evolving process, right? Those tools might not be applicable, so then that's a methodological grounds. Then we get to you know what's the justification of knowledge if we don't have those determinate solutions, you know what we refer to as closed ended model of choice and single exit theorems, right? So what it, what now do we do analytically, you know, to sort of dis- discuss processes? How do we bound or discipline ourselves when we're talking about evolution towards a solution as opposed to the solution, right? Um, and so that's a that's a real challenge, and then. What do we mean by having a set of rules which cultivate an environment as opposed to a set of rules which provide a solution to a social problem? So I see an externality. It's a negative externality, so I'm going to tax it, as opposed to establishing rules such that individuals will negotiate away conflicts, right? So one set of rules are an indirect solution, The other set is a direct solution. But what if we have knowledge problems associated with those direct solutions? What if we have interest group problems associated with those direct solutions? Well, then the direct solution idea is not as practical as our philosophical model may think it to be. And instead, we're stuck with just picking general rules and allowing the individuals to interact within those rules that's a different style of reasoning. So methodologically, analytically, and then practically, the kind of economics that I think we should be practicing is so at odds with the way textbook economics is taught and absorbed by people that, um, you know, it just it's just a constant sort of difficulty of making sure you figure out how to get involved in the conversation the right way.
1: So, when you mentioned about the rules for individuals to negotiate a conflict if there was a negative externality, so rather than tax it, they would. It's, you're are you implying that people should have the freedom in order to um, sort out this conflict themselves? And if we have a laissez-faire economy,
0: well, so uh, I'm thinking of, uh, of of the of the Coase theorem. Okay, it's important to remember that the that in Ronald Coase's idea the criticism of standard Pagovian economics is twofold. The first one is that in a zero transaction cost world, the conflicts would be negotiated away easily by the parties. And so therefore the solution, the Pagovian solution is redundant. And then if we live in a positive transaction cost world, the Pagovian solution is non-operational because the very reason why the agents can't negotiate away the conflict is also going to be the reason why the political officials can't choose the optimal tax or subsidy scheme to eliminate the conflict. So instead, what we need to look at is how individuals stumble upon various rules and find contracts that allow them to reshuffle the property rights assignments such that we can minimize conflicts. And in this regard, This is one of the reasons why I draw a lot on the work of Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom in in my writings. Um, So there's a long history there. I wrote a book on the Ostroms before she won the Nobel Prize um, and uh, was involved in a lot of things in promoting the kind of Bloomington school approach um, and its merger with the Virginia school approach and with the Austrian school approach. Um, But what Eleanor did in her work in dealing with common pool resources is we identify a social dilemma, social tension, which we could for all practical purpose describe as a, a Hobbesian situation where life is going to be nasty, brutish and short. And what she showed is how individuals stumble upon various design principles from the bottom up, rule arrangements, which limit access, define accountability and introduce graduated penalties such that individuals can realize the gains from cooperation. And that's what she sees in her common pool resources. And so what you have is you have a Hobbesian problem that I've identified, but a Smithian solution that comes out of it by rearranging the rules of the game. And so this is why, you know, institutions are forever mattering, that you can't get away from institutions. And so you can't do economics Like Samuelson wanted to do, which was to do economics uh, um, in an institutionally antiseptic way. That was a direct goal of Samuelson and uh, Francis Beitor, but also the Arohan de Bru model. It was to do economics in an institutionally, uh, in an institutional vacuum. And what 20th century Second half of 20th century microeconomics is all about is bringing those frictions back into the forefront of economic analysis. So we understand how different institutions resolve conflicts, how different institutions promote economic cooperation and development rather than provide hindering and so we can imagine an environment where why is some countries rich and other not countries poor? Well, the countries that allow us to realize the, the gains from social cooperation and division of labor, they're the ones that become wealthy. So if you think about, again, Asimoglu and Robinson, you know, they're, they, they summarize it down to ex, you know, inclusive institutions or extractive institutions. So the extractive institutions, those are the ones that undermine the de- economic development and growth. Translated back to, to, you know, what I'm talking about, it's those extractive institutions which would augment and exacerbate the Hobbesian situation in the right. So the conflicts wouldn't get resolved. In fact, they would be exacerbated because of the different changes of those institutions. What we want to do is we want to see institutions which would minimize those conflicts and reward individuals for cooperative behavior and, and internalizing those externalities. Does that make sense? Or I don't want to be too jargon laden. So I want to sort of just get to the sort of basic idea that, you know, you find, you find different rules that are bubble up from the social interactions. You were talked about Hayek's ideas. You'd see the analogy here with Hayekian spontaneous order, but it's about not so much the processes within the rules, which is what you hear Hayek talking about a lot, but also the process of the evolution of the rules that allow us to cooperate themselves.
1: So there, there is an element of reciprocity then in, amongst these institutions or these inclusive institutions rather
0: than the extractive? Right. So they're nested in one another. So that's one thing. And there is reciprocity. So go back to your earlier point about Adam Smith. So one way to reconcile Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments, which is about our other regarding behavior and the wealth of nations, which is about self-regarding behavior, is that there's a certain limit to our span of our moral sympathy and that in, in intimate orders, it's correct that we would draw on our familiar feelings and our sympathetic feelings. But when we're drawing among our strangers, right, then all of a sudden we need different kind of rules by which we interact. So Smith has this great passage in the beginning of The Wealth of Nations where he says that um, scarce in a lifetime do we have the opportunity to make but a few close personal friends. But for our survival, we rely on the cooperation of great multitudes every single day. How is it that we're going to interact with others versus our intimates? So the the theory of moral sentiments is all about our empathetic feelings and how we develop and cultivate that. And that's what it means to be a civilized human being. All right. But then by the time we're in the wealth of nations, we're talking about how we develop that or that kind of sense. Is limited in the sense that we can't treat everyone as if they're like our son or our nephew or, or whatever. Instead, we deal with them. The trust is embedded in the institution then. So contracts or the negotiation of terms on the price. And, you know, the easiest way to think about this is if you went downstairs to get cereal when you were 10 years old from your mom and your mom said, okay, that's $5 or three pounds or whatever, right? Uh, you would look at it and say, what are you talking about, mom? But if you went into the diner in your local town and they gave you your breakfast and then you said, oh, thanks a lot and tried to walk out without paying, they would say, you know, what's wrong with you, right? And so we have to understand we live in these two worlds at once and Smith's, you know, discussion of the cooperative nature of human beings and the empathetic feeling is not in conflict at all with this discussion of the self-interest and, uh, you know, abstract order of the market. They, in fact, feed right into one another. It's just different degrees of familiarity, different degrees of the span of our moral sympathies. And how far do you think Keynes
1: would have diverted us away from the thinking or the the, the foundation that Adam Smith has built for us in terms of the economy or understanding economics? Because as Frank Knight has put it and this is a quote taken directly from your book. Do we
0: blame Keynes for taking us back to the dark ages? So it's a very, very sort of tough question because there's no doubt that Keynes had several things going for him. One of them is, is that he uh, was an extremely charismatic figure that was comfortable in academics, in business, and in government. And so he was kind of one of these very uh, sort of uniquely talented intellectuals. Second of all, he was extremely brilliant, right? Um, I mean, from and identified as such from a very young age. Um, And this includes, like, if you read the, the most interesting biographies of any economist, in my opinion, are actually the biography on Keynes by Skidelsky. And if you read the first volume, you get a sense of just the amazing brilliance of Keynes as an intellect from identified from a very early age. And then uh third, he was a very gifted writer. So except for the general theory, his pen is amazingly gifted. And so he was an essayist as well as a scientist, as well as a book writer. Now, OK, so all those things aside now, I do think Keynes is a product of his age so you have to remember that he's coming out of you know the nineteenth century Britain. He is part of a of a new sort of emerging order among intellectuals, which is trying to tear apart the existing order. And that includes like him and his Bloomsbury friends like using first names rather than people's like Mr. You know, so and so or whatever. You know, they're now tearing down the kind of previous existing Barriers and and whatnot, and the, and the uh, kind of traditional moralities they're trying to tear apart. So he's part of that whole progressive ideology, which is becoming very very important during the the twentieth century, beginning part of the twentieth century. And he, you know, he's a very very clever guy, and so he's making arguments here and there. What people like Knight and Hayek are talking about is that Keynes was not a very extremely well-trained economist in the technical meaning of that word. You can see Hayek actually on YouTube, old videos of him claiming that Keynes knew very little about the whole body of economic thought. He knew like Marshall's book, and that's basically it. So he doesn't really know what's going on in the continent. He doesn't know what goes back historically. And starting in, even in 1926, You know, he's already attacking, you know, laissez-faire and the kind of caricature of laissez-faire in which rationality is hyper-rationality. And he's saying, like, people don't do that and we don't we don't harmonize. Go back and read his essay, uh, The End of Laissez-Faire. It's a it's a very well-written essay, but there's aspects of it which, you know, if you read the history of economics, you would be like he's just building straw man after straw man here. And then you have to keep in mind uh, that uh, you know what he did and he, what he consciously did was – and he uses this phrase actually in the general theory – is that um, he relied on the, what he called the rogues gallery of economic thinkers. So he reached back in the history of economics and drug up all the people who economists had determined – had misunderstood the nature of the core teachings of economics and so that includes malthus's theory of a general glut it includes people like major douglas you know who are kind of monetary cranks they you know believe that you there's no real relationship between the expansion of the money supply and the price level you know there's uh, he puts a focus on spending not on savings uh it's an underconsumption theory right of of the of the recession and so it's all about getting spending it's not about savings and capital accumulation and so to someone like knight these are all a bunch of old ideas that have already been discredited and now Keynes is repackaging them and bringing them out now to Keynes's credit great britain i think that this fact is correct but i am subject to being wrong but i think that great britain had only fallen under ten, uh, under double digit unemployment from the end of World War one to the mid thirties only once, and so it's kind of like the way we think about Japan today there's just this a massive amount of stagnation <clears throat> what's wrong is that Keynes wanted to build a caricature a caricature and kind of made a claim that you know what they had been doing in Great Britain or in the United States during this long stagnation period was laissez faire and therefore that's why we're you know, in the in in such a bad form, whereas the reality is, is that if you read contemporary people like Hayek or whatever, they were complaining that the government was too interventionist, you know, throughout this whole period of time. Right. The government's not doing the right activities. It's engaging in all these wrong activities, which is to prop up spending and to do all of these other things. So a lot of Keynesian policies for example, especially in the United States, were already adopted well before Keynes came along. I mean, look at Roosevelt's brain trust. You know, Rexford Tugwell and the whole uh, Fosters and Catchings kind of model is dominating the way that America is, is trying to tackle the Great Depression. Uh, but Keynes comes along and there's this impression that the only reason why the Great Depression has lasted as long as it did was because politicians lacked the foresight to engage in these more aggressive policies Now they start engaging in those more aggressive policies. It coincides with World War II. We end up by, you know, growing out of the Great Depression to some extent. Again, you know, just as a point of facts or evidence, remember that all the economists that were skilled in the Keynesian techniques uh, during this period of time predicted that we would go into a massive recession after the war, because spending would be cut down. Government spending would cut down, right? But instead, we end up by having a kind of a post-World War II, you know, miracle of economic growth in the United States, for example. And so to someone like like Knight the or Viner or any of these other guys that were critics of Keynes in real time, they thought Keynes was drudging up all of these ideas which had been proven to be fallacious, and now he's putting it all in a bundle and bringing it out. On the other hand, you know, what you have to remember is that Keynes is just this amazingly charismatic figure. And he thought that he had developed, at least according to Hayek and others, that he had developed the ideas that were the right ideas for the time. And when politicians were going to start using them the wrong way, right, Keynes thought he had enough uh, like charisma and power that he could say, you know, stop doing that and snap his fingers, and they would do go back to a more classical program. This is at least how Hayek says Keynes treated inflation—that you know the policies that they were engaged in were, you know, from Hayek's point of view, inflationary, and that if it started to click up, inflation started to reveal itself. Then Keynes said to him that I'll, I'll just tell them to stop, and they'll reverse like that. And so, uh, in this regard. I think it's important to think of that kind of idea of Keynes and compare it to what his reaction is to the, to, uh, the road to serfdom, where he says that he's in complete agreement with Hayek in the moral sentiment about the more, uh, the road to serfdom. He disagrees with Hayek in the sense that clearly we want more planning, not less, provided that the planning was done by people like Hayek and him. And he thought that the British system of civil service would select that out. Right. And so the people wouldn't be uh suffer from the problems of bureaucratic uh, mission creep or any of the bureaucratic dysfunctions, which later public choice explains to us. And so, you know, you, you, if you understand Keynes on his own terms. There's a kind of a lack of a deep economics basis, like the way you see in some of these other thinkers like Knight. But yet at the same time, there, he, he you know, he's so much more charismatic and influential figure than someone like Knight, too. So uh, it's a mixed bag in those regards.
1: One thing when you were talking about Keynes there that stood out to me um, that I was thinking of, sorry, was that post-World War One and the high taxation and the pressures that – the UK and other countries put on Germany to rebuild and repay for the devastation caused throughout Europe.
0: Right. And
1: Keynes mentioned that if we continue on with this, we could end up with an individual, not necessarily an individual, but a population who will become quite aggrieved and it could create what eventually became um to be the Nazi Nazi
0: Germany. Yeah, sure. Keynes's economic consequences of the peace is one of the great classics of the early of the early part of the 20th century in economics. I mean, he's, um, I should point out, by the way, that Ludwig von Mises, in his book, Nation, State, and Economy, which is a German language uh, book, uh, he also uh, sort of, you know, mentioned a lot of these things. And obviously his book did not have the same impact as Keynes. Again, you know, Keynes is one of the great intellectual figures of the 20th century. Uh, This reinforces the idea of why Milton Friedman is so important. Is because you know Hayek basically had shifted his focus, and and hopefully maybe you'll ask me about that a little bit because yeah, uh, sure. it relates to a book that I'm working on at the moment. But uh, but uh, what what uh, uh, Friedman did was an amazing intellectual achievement because when he started out, he was really the only non-Keynesian left in the economics profession, and he was able to overturn all of that. It was just phenomenal. So, you know, Friedman is just, uh, you know, what he achieved was phenomenal, but it's only because you have to recognize how amazing Keynes was to see how Friedman's dissection of the Keynesian model is so valuable.
1: Is it true? I heard, I read this before that if you weren't a Keynesian,
0: you'd never get a tenure in a university back then. Um, I mean, I think that people overstate that to some extent because you could be like a microeconomist and just work on that. Um, but it is the case that the, there was a hegemonic notion of what macroeconomics went. So monetarism was very much a kind of radical departure from the Keynesian dominance in the 1950s and 60s. And so someone who was pursuing a kind of an Austrian type program in in price theoretic macroeconomics would have have had a very, very difficult time. But, you know, at the same time that we're mentioning that, the facts are such that, you know, uh, Fritz Machlup became president of American Economic Association. He was the editor of the American Economic Review at a time. You know, Hayek was a professor, uh, you know, at the London School of Economics, which prior to uh, World War II was one of the major centers in the world in economics. Um, he only came, left the LSE because of personal reasons, not because of professional reasons. Um, so he could have taught his career at the LSE, he came to the United States. And for a long time, you know, he was offered different positions in the United States before the road to serfdom came out. Um, but he chose to wait and come to the United States. Part of the reason why he hesitated with some of the jobs that were originally offered to him was because of his personal circumstances In the United States, they had rules at the time about faculty and money they earned outside of the university and who owned the right to that. And so he hesitated coming because he wanted to maximize his income because he had two families he had to support now, right? His family he was getting divorced from and his new family that he was marrying into. And so, you know, Hayek sort of did Mises is another story. He was very well established in Geneva, uh, he ended up by winning the Distinguished Fellow of the american economic Association, so that 's like an amazing award for someone to do and yet at the same time, what you know uh Mises came here to the United States, he was already in his sixties, so that 's difficult to like integrate into the academic scene um and so it's it was tough. No doubt, people like Gottfried Hobbler was at Harvard. Morgan Stern was at Princeton. Machlup ended up at Princeton uh, after being at Johns Hopkins. Uh, so the the Austrians that came over here, they all ended up by integrating themselves into the academic culture of the United States and being leaders in it. But it wasn't the most friendly environment for them to be leaders. That's just a testimony to their amazing, you know, uh, strength as intellectuals. I think, but. Was tough. It was tough, no doubt. Yeah.
1: You mentioned uh, that you're working on a book. Is it to do with Hayek's influence on Friedman? No, no, no.
0: It's a book about – it's in a book called Great Thinkers. It's in a series which Macmillan publishes called Great Thinkers in Economics. And I'm writing the book on Hayek. And a couple of things I'm trying to do in the book is one is oh. I'm trying to clarify some misconceptions about Hayek uh, that deal with um, – you know, uh, uh, sort of Hayek and, and and various different ideas like neoliberalism and all kinds of other things like that. But one of the other things I'm trying to explain is the internal logic of Hayek's own development as an economist. And I talk about his move in the 1940s away from technical economics and into things like political theory and legal theory as and, and also uh, epistemology as not moves away from economics, but moves in order to try to capture the institutional framework within which economic activity takes place and to judge those frameworks by their alternative epistemic properties. So if you think about economic coordination, you can talk about incentive alignment as one avenue of it, and you can also talk about information processing as another part of it and maybe the connection between the two of those. At the time that Hayek was writing, it was considered to be in bad taste by your intellectual opponents if you talked about the incentive problems that their system is going to confront because they thought that you were talking about the motivations that the different actors would have. And so it was actually a violation of the value freedom criteria at this time. I mean, if you can see this in reading Langa, you can see it in reading H.D. Uh, Dickinson. They they are very clear that you're not allowed to talk about the incentive problems that their schemes would take into account. That's also true of Abba Lerner, and so Hayek is not going to respond to them by saying, "Hey, look, what are the incentives that a bureaucrat has?" To be able to plan an economy exactly the way that an entrepreneur would plan when they don't have the lure of private property of uh, the incentives of private property rights or the lure of pure profit and the penalties of losses, right? Instead, what Hayek is going to talk about is assuming that everyone wants to do the right thing. How are they going to know what the right thing to do is in any given circumstance? And that's how the price system guides us in that decision. And the absence of the price system means that we don't have the ability to do that. And so what I call that is epistemics. And so I think Hayek's big turn in economics is what I call institutional epistemics, right? In that he wants to look at how alternative institutional arrangements impact our ability to access and utilize the dispersed knowledge in the economic system. And so that's the way that that all works out.
1: Peter, I'd love to go on and talk further uh, with you. I know you're um, possibly you're busy at the moment, but I'd love to do a part two to this. If that's any way possible, with you, because I've many questions here to ask. I, I even love to talk about one or two of your one one or two of the Austrian economists in a quite bit more detail. And obviously, what's close to your heart would be the teaching of economics and advice you'd give to students, whether they be graduate students of Austrian economics or other disciplines, other schools. Um, and there's so yeah. much more I wanted to talk to you about, and I'd love to catch up with you again very shortly if that's any way doable.
0: No, that's possible. I mean, I can, you know, we're winding down our semester here, and I'm not traveling really. So, anytime you want to talk, uh, I'd be thrilled to talk. I think, again, you know, what you're doing is one of the really great innovative uh, products in economic discourse going around. I think it's phenomenal what, you know, these new media are offering to people to have refined conversations about these kind of ideas. And uh, I realize sometimes I'm long-winded with my answers. I apologize for that um, and uh, and whatnot. But I, I find it's fascinating to talk about this. So anytime you want to talk about it, would be great.
1: Fantastic. And I'm sure the listeners would love, because you, you dropped a lot of names there. And, you know, I, a lot of economists in terms of Austrian thinking, and I'd love to be able to dwell or talk about some of those. It'd be amazing to do so. Peter, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me in Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share with our listeners where they could find you.
0: At George Mason University and uh, sort of the uh, um, just at the Mercatus Center. Um, and uh, I'd love to hear from any of them. It would be awesome.
1: And you have your website too, Peter Bedke, P E T E R hyphen B O E T T K E dot com. And it's a fantastic resource. Many of your papers, your articles, Even your book, you can purchase your book online there. Um, Fantastic resources. SSRN.
0: (laughs) SSRN, you can get my downloads up. (laughs) Oh, can you? All right. Well, thank you very much. I greatly appreciate you taking the opportunity to talk to me.
1: Great. You can find all the links to Peter on economicrockstar.com forward slash Peter Bedt. That's B O E T T K E. Peter, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You are an economic rockstar. Thank you. Thanking you. Bye. All (laughs) righty. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com, where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support.